According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here for the purpose of growth this morning. Our growth will come through the scriptures. You can turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We have been dealing with the visit by Nicodemus, the nighttime visit by Nicodemus. And I want to run through that outline one more time, and then we will move on to the next area, which is the co-ministry of Jesus Christ with John the Baptist. But we were running out of time at the end of our session one week ago, and I want to go through this one more time. And uh, run through the nine points of study that we have with respect to Jesus and John and uh, Nicodemus. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer and ensure that we are filled with the Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness in our lives day by day. We ask for your hand of blessing upon us as we study this morning, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Before I forget, there is no class next week. I'm going to Schaefer Seminary for their annual conference. Uh, Ladies are still certainly welcome to meet for prayer, but uh, there will not be Bible teaching at 10 o'clock. As we look at Jesus and Nicodemus here, we recognize... There is a tremendous amount of study that goes into simply the titles that are employed in terms of Pharisee and in terms of a Jewish ruler. And a lot of information that's available on that, um, some of it very reliable, some of it not so very reliable. We've tried to indicate the sources that we um, have deemed acceptable or reliable, trustworthy, and so forth. Grace Notes has some amazing material there on the Jewish religious systems. I uh, quoted that and uh, demonstrated some of the uh, benefits of that uh, approach last week. The fact that he was a Pharisee means that he was very religious. Does that mean he was saved? No. (laughs) As the Lord keeps telling him over and over again in this passage, you must be born again. He is an unbeliever, but he's very knowledgeable with respect to the scriptures. And hopefully uh, some of these things have become clear over the course of the last couple of weeks. But as a Pharisee, he was enslaved to a religious system of self-righteousness. Paul would go on to say in his writings that as to the righteousness which is found in the law, blameless. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And in terms of the external keeping of of the system of the law, no one could file an accusation against the Apostle Paul. And we might say the same thing against Nicodemus, given that he was not only a Pharisee, but a ruler. Uh, a voting member of the Sanhedrin, someone who had risen to the pinnacle of political power. And he came to Christ and received the greatest gospel message in the entire Bible. That's my opinion, but I think that you can go through John chapter 3 and receive uh, tremendous blessing every time you go through it on an evangelistic basis. Now, some other study on this will pass by. This is just a very rapid review before we move on to the second part of chapter 3, and I'm hoping that in the process of doing this, that you're going to highlight some things. 
in your thinking that, that Jesus Christ taught to Nicodemus. And it's going to jog your memory when we get into the next paragraph because John the Baptist is going to have a very similar message. And it gives us a good understanding in terms of this contemporaneous ministry between Jesus and John the Baptist in verses 22 through 36, the recognition that John the Baptist knew what was going on. And he had a clear and accurate gospel message himself, which begs the question, why does he continue to have disciples <laughs> after announcing Jesus as the Christ? You, you would think that he would simply close up shop dismiss all of his students and go into retirement and say, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. Well, that doesn't happen. And I think we need to, uh, we can't, of course, waste time speculating, but we should at least consider what uh, is really going on in re with respect to these disciples. All right, just simply reading from the text here. Uh, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, uh, there's a title I didn't throw around lightly. And for him to actually address Jesus as rabbi in itself is significant. This was a title that a young man, a Pharisee, would, would claw, scratch, fight, bite, whatever it would take in order to be recognized as a rabbi, as an approved teacher in their religious system. Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And this is the nature of God the Father and his faithful witness towards his Son. God wanted there to be no mistake who his beloved Son was. He wanted there to be no dispute that this was his Son. That's why at the baptism event, for example, the heavens were opened. The divine message was, behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And we have the testimony that is, in fact, undeniable. We gave that to you in our point three. I'm sorry, point two. Nicodemus confessed the Pharisees' understanding of Christ's origin. And this is all the more condemning, see, because they knew that he had come from God the Father and they hated him anyway. They rejected him anyway. And those unbelievers among the Pharisees crucified him anyway, knowing full well that God the Father had sent him. And so the, the condemnation was just when Jesus Christ asked them, which of the prophets did your fathers not kill? See, you are doing the deeds of your fathers. And just as in generations past, Isaiah, Jeremiah, I mean, all of the prophets throughout their history had been mistreated and the vast majority had been martyred in the application of their faith. And Jesus Christ says, lo and behold, your sin is the greatest because they all anticipated the coming Christ. Now here's the, the Christ revealed and this generation is going to crucify him. Thirdly, Jesus laid out the only issue that matters to this lost and dying world. And when it comes right down to it, you and I may encounter modern day equivalent Pharisees. That is very religious people, knowledgeable people. We might even come across some biblical scholars, but they're not regenerate. They're not saved. They've not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. They're simply approaching on an academic basis. They're approaching, and, and that's a vulnerability in Bible churches. I've got to tell you, there's, a, there's an arrogance that comes through the systematic accumulation of categorical doctrine, see? And Corinthians tells us that knowledge without love puffs up, see? Love edifies, but knowledge makes arrogant. And so these are the, these are the snares that we want to guard against. And... Um, Someone even in, in the first year of being a pastor years ago, and forgive me if it was one of you sitting here this morning, but somebody gave me a book on the, the uh, modern day guide to Phariseeism. And it was so true and it was so convicting because lo and behold, that's where we are when we get so academically uh, ensnared by these 
systems of teaching that we've lost sight of the reality behind it. With the heavenly credentials established, the heavenly message must be given. You must be born again. Since his origin is undeniable, it then becomes imperative that we listen to what he has to say. And what does he have to say? You must be born again. Now, that might not be popular. (laughs) You know, this learned scholar and rabbi and teacher of Israel. You know, even this title, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not know? You know, the teacher of Israel, when, when it comes with their pecking order, and some Pharisees that were higher than other Pharisees and so forth. This title, the teacher of Israel, is rather instructive. See, and he needs to be born again. It's almost like Charles Wesley, who pastored for a number of years before he even got saved, and then started to realize that there were some hang-ups in his ministry. And once he got saved, a famous Aldersgate conversion, he realized, man, I've been doing all this in human effort in the flesh all this time. And he gets saved, and lo and behold, his messages take on a whole new sense of power. I wonder why. <laughs> All right. Same thing with his brother, John. See, John and Charles Wesley both were ordained in the Anglican church. They were ministering in local churches. They were pastoring, so to speak, but they were unsaved men. See, this is the case here with Nicodemus. The second, the second birth cannot be understood in natural human terms. It is a spiritual action that can not be physically seen, but can certainly be felt. And uh, verse eight, it's likened to the wind. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. See, and people who want to put it in a Petri dish or look at it under a microscope or they want God to prove himself to them scientifically. God says no. See, without faith, it is impossible to please God. We must approach him on the basis of faith, not science. It's not things which I have seen or ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man. And yet it's not a blind faith. We don't want to carry that too far and say, well, it's faith, it's not science, and so deny that there's any evidence out there whatsoever. And that's where I think Brian Young and other ministries like that and creation evangelism and so forth, there's evidence everywhere. And we can look at it, we can appreciate it, but we're going to interpret the data differently than the skeptic will, than the unbeliever will, because our minds are regenerate, theirs are not, their uh, heart is darkened, and uh, whereas ours is enlightened. And so it's quite interesting that that they will accuse us of functioning on a blind faith and and that of course is not true faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of god we don't believe in nothing we believe in what has been spoken what has been said that becomes an important concept as well point five academic bible knowledge is not the total answer you know and i didn't get stoned last week when i said that so i figured you can get away with it a little bit but it's almost heresy in a bible church and it's almost heresy in a categorical doctrinal Bible church in, that emphasizes teaching. And, and we do. But you've got to do something with the teaching. You've got to live it. See, it's not just inhale, inhale, inhale. You've got to exhale. See, and it's amazing how many pastors would teach this and then how many people would not apply it. See, Pastor Theme would say inhale, exhale. You've got to live what you're learning. And how many people just would follow after a, a, an inhale cult? See, we're going to fill notebooks, we're going to outline points, we can, we can give a total schematic of, of Genesis to Revelation, but we don't know what it means. <laughs> and it doesn't change our life, see. We're, we're miserable, sad, depressed, lonely, okay? And yet your neighbor who has almost no teaching whatsoever, a thimble full of doctrine, but he knows what he knows and he lives it and he loves it. He can have a, a lot greater application than some believers with more content when it comes down to it.
we have to accept the heavenly message and it takes humility. And uh, you can imagine this professor, this scholar, this man that's been teaching for decades and he's told he has to get saved. You think that's a message that needs humility? Of course it does. Verses 9 through 13. Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. Now keep this verse in mind because we're going to come back to this when John the Baptist is going to be highlighting this. The fact that Jesus Christ is unique. Of all the other prophets, every other prophet that ever arose saw heavenly visions and would relate those things, but he himself was still earthly, right? Moses, the greatest of all the prophets, never went to heaven. (laughs) He was still from earth, all right? He would get heavenly visions, he would speak to God, he would relate heavenly information. But now here is a prophet who actually came from heaven, who from all eternity past has been in fellowship with God the Father. See, and everything that the Gospel of John introduces, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. So not only is he a prophet in the sense of all the other Old Testament prophets, but he's unique among all the Old Testament prophets because they saw things, nevertheless they saw things from the perspective of planet Earth and their finite minds, their finite thinking. He, coming from the source of God, coming down out of heaven, is giving the most unique testimony ever. We speak of that of what we know and testify of what we have seen and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. All right. The unique prophet. Now, Elijah ascended to heaven, but he hasn't been permitted to come back yet and tell anything. (laughs) All right. Enoch was translated. There's a lot of folks that have died and gone on, but they didn't come back. All right. Jesus Christ now has come down from heaven. He has a message to deliver, the most unique message ever delivered. And uh, it's going to take some humility to accept these things. Point six, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the only means by which mankind might receive eternal life by means of grace through faith. And we have got to accept that our Bible presents a finite, limited, restrictive gospel message. And the cosmos will hate it. The world will attack it. Well, what do you expect? See, they say, well, you're too exclusive. You're narrow minded. All right. Well, no, I'm faithful because the text is narrow. (laughs) If I take a narrow text and I preach a broad message, what does that mean? That means I'm violating the text. But if the text is narrow and I preach a narrow message, then what does that mean? I'm being faithful to the text. All right. And again and again and again and again, we have the uh, the narrow view. Notice in verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. That's exclusive. That says there's one and only person in the history of the universe that ever came to earth to reveal God, the father. That's Jesus Christ. That's exclusive. Likewise. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It is the only means by which redemption can be accomplished. The only means. And we took the time last week to go back into Numbers and show the the serpent bites and show the sentence of death and show that there was only one way to live. Look and live. And this is the only way by which the human race, in consequence of the serpent bite, as it were, 
in consequence of the serpent who deceived Adam, who deceived Eve and the human race plunged into sin, the only solution to the serpent bite, okay, typically speaking now, is to look to the Son of Man as he's lifted up to believe in Jesus Christ. Whoever believes will in him have eternal life. That's exclusive. Has nothing to do with works, has nothing to do with merit, has nothing to do with religion. It's placing your faith in Jesus Christ is the only means by which we can receive eternal life. Point seven, in this gospel message, Christ reveals the Father's gift. And I would encourage you just to think your way through the gospel of John and think in terms of the Father's revelation. All right. And this is why I wanted to spend a little bit of time this morning in terms of review when you uh, join me now in chapter one, let's just look at it. Okay. Give you kind of a devotional way to think your way through the gospel of John. Again, it's exclusive. In John one and verse 14, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. And yet it wasn't his personal glory because he laid that aside. He was reflecting the father's glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. And there is an amazing concept. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. That's verse 17. Verse 18 says, no one has seen God, that's the father at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the father. He has explained him. All right. Now, given that Matthew, Mark and Luke have already been written, given that the synoptic gospel records already out there in the decades following the gospel of John now is being written. And John is showing us the unfolding of the father, the exegesis of the father. And that's the word that you have here in explained him in verse 18 has exegeted him, has thoroughly revealed him. So we go chapter by chapter by chapter to recognize the revealing of the father. All right. Starting right here in chapter one, we have the father's son who's sent from his bosom and who reveals him in chapter two. We have the um, father's house. When you glance over to chapter two and he drives him out and he says in verse 16, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. So when you start thinking your way through the gospel of John, you're meditating upon the father. It's a patrological book. And you have the father's son in chapter one who's introduced. And then the father's house in chapter two. You have the father's gift in chapter three for God. That's the father in verse 16. So love the world that he gave his only begotten son. We so often stress the willingness of jesus christ to go to the cross and that's true he went to the cross voluntarily volitionally he laid down his life but he was doing so according to his father's plan according to his father's test see and in the typology of it when you go back to abraham and isaac abraham was willing to sacrifice isaac abraham was a type of god the father It was the father that was being presented there way back in genesis chapter 22 So we have the father's house. We have the father's gift over in chapter four. We have the father's worship. When this sinful Samaritan woman has this question, you know, which mountain is it? Is it Mount Zion? Is it Mount Gerizim? Are are you Jews right or us Samaritans right? How does this work? And Jesus says to her in verse 21, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. See, this is the father's worship. He says in verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. 
And I think all too often in a very immature version of Christianity, we have worshipers of Jesus Christ, and that's well and good because he's worthy of worship. He's entitled to worship. He is God, very God. But he did not desire himself to be the centerpiece, but he was taking disciples to the Father. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so here's the Father's worship. God the Father seeks Father worship, described in chapter 4. In chapter 5, we have the Father's work. Notice in verse 20 of chapter 5, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing, and the Father will show Him greater works than these that you will marvel. The Father's work. And the Father is doing work. He's showing the Son the work, so the Son can do the work. He's going to show Him even greater work. And the church age is the age of the Father's greater work. I hope we can understand some of these things. In... um, Chapter 6, the Father's provision when he multiplies the bread. In chapter 7, it's the Father's teaching. In chapter 8, it's your father, the devil. And it gets very confrontational. So you can go through the Gospel of John and you can find the patriological application in every chapter as God the Son is unfolding the Father. And that's what we deal with in terms of evangelism. We're going to talk about a gift. It is the Father's gift. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, that's the Father, is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And we need to be presenting the gospel on the basis of a grace gift that is freely offered and must be freely received. All right, point eight in the outline of John 3. Failure to believe results in death as the fallen estate of natural man. In fact, it is the default position. If the unbeliever continues to resist, continues to reject, never does accept Christ as their Savior, well, then the default position is death, unless they believe. See, without taking the step of faith, without entering into salvation, they are already in that position of death. That's what they're born into. It is the default position. We're going to come up with this again in John the Baptist's message this morning. But verse 18 says, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Before he was born. Before anything. Because that's the lost estate they're born into. He was in Adam. When Adam sinned. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. See verse 36. John the Baptist has an identical message. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides already, present active indicative, already, even now, continually abides on him. All right, then the last area of study where we ran out of time, light and darkness are in conflict, even as the saved and the lost are in conflict. That's verses 19 through 21. This is the judgment that the light has come into the cosmos and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Good and evil are described as absolute antithetical concepts. Righteousness is the opposite of unrighteousness. And there's no middle ground. There's no gray area. See, no man can serve two masters. We're either obedient to God the Father or we're serving your father the devil. John 8, 44. All right. This is the conflict as it's described. And it is merely the extension in terms of the volitional battlefield. The human conflict is merely the extension of the angelic conflict. And it serves to illustrate the righteousness of God. It serves to illustrate grace. And it serves to bring about the plan of God in its completion. Light has come into the cosmos. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light. 
and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Why do you think it is that you encounter opposition? Well, because you are light. Jesus Christ says you are the light of the world. We are children of light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And the brighter your light shines, what, is that, what effect does that have on the deeds of darkness? See, when Paul in, the God, in, in his writings will say, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead rather expose them. How do you do that? How do you expose deeds of darkness? Walking in the light, right? Yeah, it doesn't mean that you're going to become some kind of a, you know, a snoop or some kind of an investigative reporter and you're going to crawl around in people's, you know, closets and plant microphones and hidden cameras and stuff. You're not here to, you know, to out anybody or to write an expose or to, you know, publish something on the website and document something. Okay? Not what it means. It means let your light shine before men in such a way that they will see your good works and will glorify your Father who is in heaven. It means you live your life as unto the Lord for the glory of Jesus Christ. And that act alone shines forth the light. And then in comparison, this other person is left without excuse. And the angels who are observing all of these things are left with a panorama of God's righteousness on display. That's why we're commanded to walk in the light. All right? We have the conflict. He who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. See, there's nothing you've done in the light that you can be ashamed of. Everything you've done in the light, wonderful. See, no problem. You don't mind if someone brings it up <laughs> in time or in eternity. See, when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ and everything you've done in the light, what is that? Gold, silver, precious stones. And it will all be put on display. No shame, no problem. There it is. But everything you've done in darkness, well, what is that? <laughs> Wood, hay, stubble. And those are the things that, hmm, you're not exactly thrilled with having them you know, put on display. You would much rather just keep those in darkness. Don't bring those out into the light. But see, eventually everything comes out into the light. Even these things of darkness, they're brought out into the light so they can be burned, condemned, and done away with for all eternity. See, we think we can get away with stuff. We can hide stuff and nobody sees. No, he sees. Your father who sees in secret will repay. So this is the conflict that we're in. And so it's not surprising that as we get into this next area here in terms of the uh, ministry of John the Baptist, and these two ministries now are going to be happening side by side within, within view of one another. And it's not surprising that the moment these things come up, the adversary is right there. And he starts sending his agents in to go in and infiltrate and to go in and stir up trouble and to go in and draw people's attention to the other one. Okay? And that's what happens here. So let's get a look at that. And I'll switch slideshows and we'll move on to point nine in the Harmony of the Gospel outline. Co-ministry with John the Baptist. We're still in the overall section that's labeled Beginning of Jesus Ministry. We're approaching the end of that section, by the way, as we're heading towards the Galilean ministry. The Galilean ministry is the longest portion of the life of Christ and is the um, really the bulk of the gospel of uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke that details that material. I'm just going to see real quickly here if I have a harmony up here. I guess I don't. Um, I've got some printing projects in the works, by the way. If you want to help with that, we can certainly get some help on that. 
Um, but I think there's either 13. Does anybody have a harmony with them this morning? There's 12 or 13 points, I think, in the uh, beginning of Jesus' ministry before we move on to the Galilean ministry. And so we're, we're very close to that. And some of the later ones are very short, just one verse little things. And so we're very quickly ending this portion and moving on to the Galilean ministry. When we complete this portion, then I think it's 14 points or 13, whatever it is, when we complete it, then we will put out a packet of notes that will encompass that entire, that entire section. All right. We're going to be releasing these life of Christ notes section by section as we complete each one. All right. Do you have that there, Terry? There's 12. Okay, super. So after 9, then just 10, 11, and 12. Oh, you know what? I outsmarted myself. Number 10, leaves for Galilee. It's only four verses. Number 11 is the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. That's the bulk of chapter 4, and that'll take some time. And then number 12 is the return to Galilee. So after this morning's message, we'll deal with the woman at the well in John 4, and then this section is complete. And we will print off those notes, and we'll move on to the, to the Galilean ministry. All right, let's look at verses 22 through 36. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Aenon near Salim because there was much water there and people were coming and were being baptized. In other words, the geography and the facilities there were sufficient for both ministries to be taking place within eyeshot of one another, within earshot of one another. See, um, recognize what communication was like in the ancient world. It's not like we have it today where we can have a ministry here in Austin and Jim Myers has a ministry in Kiev and, and we're in touch every day with email and instant message. And it's almost like, you know, like we're next door neighbors say, well, not really. We're 8000 miles apart. But communication is a whole lot different nowadays than it is than it was back then. They are within earshot. They're within view of one another and able to compare and able to uh, because of those comparisons, able to develop some mental attitude sins, <laughs> problems, jealousy, Bitterness, resentment, okay, and uh, close enough to where the minions of the adversary, and that's who these Jews are in verse 25, are able to come in and work one against the other. And that's what's going on in verse 25. All right, so they were spending time there and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Aenon or Salim. Because there was much water there and people were coming and were being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore, verse 25, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. In other words, this Jesus guy is gaining more and more popularity and we're losing people. And John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. See, this man came to the Baptist with a complaint, and John the Baptist responded with an item of praise and said, hallelujah. Isn't that wonderful? Okay. It's almost like, you know, a messenger comes and he thinks he's bringing good news and, or, and the person takes it as bad news or the other way around. He comes, he thinks he's giving bad news and the person takes it as good news because it's all, it's all a matter of your perspective. You know, and you remember the fellow that came to David with the news about Saul's death? He thought he was giving him good news. He showed up all happy like, hey, guess what? Saul's dead. You can be king now. Isn't that great? Your enemies are gone. 
And, and he even embellished a bit to try to claim credit for it, to say, hey, I can get rewarded based on this. You know, here's what I did for you, David. And David said, all right, you ready for your reward? <laughs> you lifted your hand against the Lord's anointed. You're you're dead. Okay. He thought he was bringing David good news, and David was saddened by the fact that Saul died the sin unto death. Saul was a believer that went out a loser. See, David would have much rather had Saul turn it around, repent, humble himself, and die of old age. See, that's the love that David had for Jesus Christ, the love that David had for the Lord. As far as the humans come along and say, well, I want to be king, so he's got to die. He's in my way. David would have been just as happy to say, hey, you know, I can wait to become king. <laughs> I would much rather see Saul humbled, repentant, victorious. All right? Point one, the earliest ministry of Jesus Christ with his disciples was a baptism ministry similar to that of John's. So we tend to think of Jesus Christ's ministry as a traveling ministry, that he went from place to place and he did miracles and he talked about heaven. And the disciples were just kind of tagging along. <laughs> you know, what did the disciples do anyway? I mean, they just kind of followed. They organized crowds. They had people sit in different areas. They distributed food. They were almost like ushers, okay, or bouncers because kids would start to approach and Peter would say, no, no, push these kids off to the back, see. And then Christ would step in and say, no, 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 no. Bring the kids up front. Suffer the little children to come unto me, okay. It, we, we almost get this concept on the disciples that they're not doing a lot. They're just kind of following, learning, listening, working crowd control and so forth, there was so much more to the disciples and their training than that. And here we see a big clue in terms of the early training before they even went traveling. They had to get oriented to the kingdom of heaven and the gospel message that was being proclaimed. So this is his training with them before they go public, before they go on tour. See, like when the quartet, before the quartet ever goes and performs, what have they done ahead of time? Yeah, they've, they've practiced, they've rehearsed, they've gotten to where they are in agreement with one another. They're on the same sheet of music, literally. They're, um, they're, they know what they're doing so that when they go in public that they can function properly as a group. Likewise, here's Christ and his disciples, and this is part of their early training. Now, most of them had already come across from John the Baptist, so they have a background in this. Okay, He was spending time with them and was baptizing Subpoint A, this was a foundational time for the Lord with the, men of, with the men that he was training. A foundational time for the Lord with the men that he was training. And at this point, we only know of six. We're, um, we'll track through the Galilean ministry when he picks up the tax collector and when he picks up some of the other ones. All right. At this early stage, the only ones that we know about are Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Philip, and uh, Nathaniel also known as Bartholomew. This was a foundational time for the Lord with the men he was training. Spending time with them there. Spending time. <laughs> you know how critical that is? Of course you do. Uh, let's see, what have we got? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight people here, seven of which are wives, <laughs> who understand and crave an aspect of spending time 
in terms of husbands who don't do nearly enough. Okay? <laughs> All right. The time spent. I think it was one, it was Stan Newton many years ago who pointed out the myth of quality time. See? And parents you know, these working workaholic dads and they have all this guilt and so they try to make up for this guilt and they 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 compromise and they, then they come up with this mechanism by which they can say, OK, well, I, I know it's not a lot, but it's quality time. OK, don't confuse quality with quantity. OK, and the whole mythology of that is that you can somehow artificially designate that this is quality time. <laughs> There's not much of it, but I've already determined that it's quality. And Stan pointed out, you know, it's not us that makes it quality. That it's the volume of time that you spend. And then within the scope of that, parts of it will be quality. Parts of it won't. But through the sheer volume of it, the quality, of course, comes out in the process of that. Anyway, Stan said it a whole lot better than I just did, but it was something I never forgot and thought, wow, that's right. You can't plan for quality time. It happens as the Lord leads and directs as things take place. Spending time with them there. And it's interesting, the vocabulary of where we get the word diatribe, of all things, the diatribo, uh, D-I-E, I'll just outline it for you here. This uh, diatribin right there, Met autone with them. What did he do with them? Well, he diatribo is your verb, diatribo. Number 1304. Interestingly enough, it's in the imperfect tense. It's an imperfect active indicative of diatribo. When it says diatribin met autone, it's an imperfect active indicative of diatribo, all right? Which is continuous action in past time. It's almost like the present tense, which is continuous action in present time. The imperfect is continuous action in past time. And so it shows a process that he remained, he delayed, he spent time continuously. Diatribo is used in a variety of applications, both actively, passively, transitively, intransitively. The idea of to wear away or to consume. When you think about water that just wears away at the soil. You think about erosion. You think about uh, it, it was used of two things rubbing against one another. Okay, and you rub against one another. You rub against one another, and, and eventually, what have you done? Well, you've worn it away. Okay, and a lot of times it's used negatively, where a diatribe is what's that? What's a diatribe? Well, it's just a waste of time. <laughs> the person's going on and on and on and on, and he's not really saying much of anything. It's just a diatribe. Okay. Don't act so familiar with what I'm talking about here. This is something you're exposed to elsewhere, outside of Austin Bible Church. Because <laughs> when you come to Austin Bible Church, you never, ever hear a diatribe where the speaker just goes on and on and on and on and doesn't seem to be saying a whole lot. Okay? Hopefully, there's no diatribe in, although it can be effective in some ways. All right? We're just worn out and say, come on. And in terms of spending time, it can be thought of as wasting time. And there's a lot of applications of diatribo in secular Greek literature uh, that the, the authors used it as just a total waste of time. 
You know, somebody wanted to go somewhere, but instead just kind of, you know, hung out, wasted time, cooling their heels. Finally, they said, okay, we can go now. Well, this wasn't a waste of time. Jesus Christ wasn't pulling his hair out and all angry that, man, this is a delay. I should have been in Galilee by now. Okay. I think I would have been horrible as a disciple of Jesus Christ. <laughs> right? Because I'd have been looking at my watch. saying, come on. We've got an itinerary to keep. We've got to be in Canaan tonight. Nazareth the night after that. Capernaum the night after that. Let's stick to our schedule. And Jesus Christ was saying, nope, we're going to stay here. <laughs> I would have looked at it as a waste of time. He would have looked at it as saying, no, this is important. This is important. To spend or to pass time. Oh, wow, that's neat. Never seen that before. Wow. I wonder if that means I can change colors. I like that. It won't let me click. Oh, it did. Oh, this is pretty neat. All right. I'll learn that later. Wait till after class. Point B. What kind of ministry was this? Was this an evangelism ministry? Was it a teaching ministry? No, it was a baptism ministry. And specifically, it was a John the Baptist baptism ministry. So it's entirely different than what we would have in the church age, for example. This was a baptism ministry urging repentance on the part of unbelieving Israel. Another imperfect verb, just like we had it with, um, with spending time. We have another imperfect verb with baptizo. The text says that he was spending time. Dietrubin met auton kai ebaptizen. An imperfect active indicative of baptizo. I don't know what color I'm going to end up with now. Let's just see. Oh, I don't like that. I'm going to go back to red. Oh, I don't like that. Am I noticing a sequence? Oh, I am noticing a sequence here. There's a cursor that moves underneath there. Oh, I'm in. This is fun. <laughs> All right. We may go till noon. All right. What was, oh, this is what I was going to underline. Ebaptizen, right here. The accents on the alpha, so it's ebaptizen. Imperfect active indicative of baptizo. You're not going to find ebaptizen in your concordance, but you will find baptizo in your concordance. It's number 907 in the Strong's Index. To wash, to purify, to baptize. He was spending time with them, but he was baptizing these crowds that were coming out. Very important. He had a teaching ministry for them, but together they were having a baptism ministry. Now, what does that mean? That means that they were heralding the kingdom of heaven, just like John the Baptist was. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this baptism ritual was designed, along with a confession of sins, this baptism ritual was designed to take a carnal, worldly, legalistic Jewish person and prepare them for the coming of their Christ. See, just like the priesthood had a ritual purification process by which they passed by the laver, by which they washed their garments, they washed their hands, they entered into the tabernacle. This was preparing Israel to enter into their kingdom. This was preparing the nation for the coming Christ, which is why when the John is telling them repent, he tells them for the explanation, the reason the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, We've been waiting all this time without a king. They haven't had a king on the throne since Jeconiah, since the Babylonian captivity. 
But now the king is about to come. This Christ is about to be revealed. They're anticipating this kingdom. All right. And so the baptism ministry was a way to tell these legalists, these reversionists, these even unbelievers, these carnal believers. All right. To confess, to repent, to get right and to anticipate this coming king. So I think of all of these, if we could just remind ourselves here, the gospel of Luke If you'll join me back in Luke, in chapter 3, and we get kind of a a picture here on on the Baptist and what his ministry really was all about. Do not get confused. It's just, and I hope I've dispelled this already, some people think of John the Baptist as a Billy Graham kind of evangelist. You know, talking to unbelievers about getting saved. In reality, he's not talking about salvation versus lack of salvation until he gets to the Pharisees and says, you brood of vipers, you're not even saved. All right. He's talking to the Jews, preparing them for the coming of their Christ, for the coming of their king, which is what he's supposed to be doing. Um, it says in Luke 3, 3, that he came to all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, a national confession so they can be in fellowship, so they can be prepared uh, and not defiled when their king arises. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. He's the forerunner. And then when the uh, Pharisees come out, he says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. It's interesting is that the unbelievers had no part in this repentance, confession, anticipation of the coming Christ. It was only believers. What do you expect? What's going to happen after the tribulation? believers are going to be ushered into the kingdom of Jesus Christ and the unbelievers are going to be cast into hell. Notice in verse 10, the crowds were questioning him saying, what then shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. He who has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors came, teacher, what shall we do? He said, collect no more than what you've been ordered to do. In other words, quit with the bribes, quit with the graft, quit with the, uh, the embezzlement where, you know, the, the tax is three denarius, but you've been collecting four denarius all this time and passing three of them on to Rome and pocketing one yourself. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, and what about us? What shall we do? And he said, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. See, now these are all external things where believers can make application of the word of God, confessing their sins, humbling themselves, being baptized and identifying with this kingdom, which is at hand. People were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. So this is the baptism ministry of John the Baptist. And this is the baptism ministry now of Jesus Christ and his disciples as we return now to John chapter 3 and the first part now of chapter 4. When we glance ahead to chapter 4, we do get an explanation, which is interesting, that uh, Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. All right, He himself didn't physically dunk anybody, but he was teaching and supervising his disciples who were doing that. Okay, And that is interesting for a few different reasons, but I think the least of the, the probably the most critical one is the fact that John said, I baptize you with water, but after me comes one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And that the, the role of Jesus Christ was not to baptize with water. He taught his disciples. He had them do such a thing. But his was the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire and the things that we'll deal with coming up. 
Jesus Christ supervised his disciples' baptism ministry, but he himself did not baptize. Now, what are we going to glean from this? They had a baptism ministry. What does that mean? It means that they were oriented to the kingdom of heaven. It means that they were anticipating the kingdom of heaven being at hand. Now, don't let yourself get distracted. You and I, because we're 2,000 years after the fact, looking back and we know the end of the story. We know they're going to reject their king. We know they're going to crucify him. We know he's going to die. We know he's going to be buried, raised. He's going to go to heaven. We know that 2,000 years are going to go by and there's still no kingdom on earth. Okay? We know that. But don't take what we know and insert it back into John 3 and assume that they know that. All right? From their perspective, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king has just made his appearance. All right? Are you following this? Volitionally speaking now, in the realm of potential possibilities, it's conceivable that the Jews could have volitionally accepted their king. The Jews could have responded positively. The Jews could have thrown off their religion of rabbinic Pharisee legalism, Judaism, so to speak. See, they could have accepted their Messiah. The kingdom of heaven could indeed have been at hand because it said it was. Okay? Now, we got problems with that because then you'll say, well, pastor, if, if, if they would have done that, then where would the church have come from? Okay? He still had to go to the cross, right, to accomplish salvation. So how would he have gone to the cross if the Jews accepted him? Okay? And, and I'll ask the same questions because we're posing what ifs and yeah, buts, because we can pose the what ifs and the yeah, buts because we know it didn't happen. Now, is God the Father's plan thwarted by volition? Not at all. And he knew what the volition was going to be and he knew what was going to happen and he organized the whole thing in spite of human volition. All right. Now, if you want the clearest way to do this, you can get this from Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. Let me just grab Acts chapter 2 because you might have to explain this to somebody. And I think the best way to, uh, and, and there's a verse you can do this out of in chapter 2, and there's a verse you can do this out of in chapter 4 of the book of Acts. And... Let me just grab Acts 2. I think that's probably the easiest. And Peter is going to deliver this message. Verse uh, 22 of Acts 2. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Okay? Again, Nicodemus, the Pharisees admitted he's from God. We know this. We can't dispute the miracles. Then verse 23. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. All right? And every Calvinist says... Amen. Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Do I believe in sovereignty? Absolutely. You nailed to a cross by the hand of godless men and put them to death. There's volition. <laughs> and every Armenian says, Amen. So do I believe in sovereignty? I sure do. Do I believe in volition? Absolutely. Who was Jesus Christ crucified by? God the Father. In His sovereignty, by His directive will, in His total plan. But who were the agents that did it? 
human beings exercising human volition. And you can point to verses 22 and 23 here of Acts 2, and you can paint an amazing picture of how sovereignty and and volition work. And they don't attack one another, but the Father blends them in an amazing way. So, Jesus Christ's ministry is a baptism ministry. In other words, they're announcing the kingdom. The kingdom is at hand. And we're going to see it through most of the Galilean ministry. That's going to be the message of the kingdom. It's even called the gospel of the kingdom. And at some point, some Gentiles will come into the picture and he'll say, no, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. His ministry is very Israel-centered until a very hinge event. And now, with rejection, he starts to speak more limited to his disciples. He starts to prepare them for the cross. There's a very hinge event in the life of Christ, and that should be very easy to spot when we get that far, where he's no longer proclaiming the kingdom but he's preparing his disciples for the cross. All right. So we're still dealing in the early part here of his ministry and we're still talking kingdom. And that's what this baptism is about. And that's what these disciples are looking for. It's a baptism ministry for repentance. Point C, this ministry was co-located with John's continued baptism ministry. This ministry was co-located with John's continued baptism ministry. Ministry. See, John wasn't out of business. John was not out of business. He's still functioning to herald the Christ, and he's still functioning to bring repentant Jews into a state of expectation, into a state of readiness. Every uh, baptism candidate, every person that had been baptized by John or by these disciples of Jesus Christ, was publicly acknowledging that the kingdom was at hand, the king was in their midst, and they were ready to enter into the kingdom. And so the herald's ministry continues. And it will for a short period of time. It will come to the point, though, where he's arrested, where he's beheaded. Ministry ends. (laughs) All right? And, not surprisingly enough, shortly thereafter, because of what they did to the herald, what they're going to do to the king. Jesus Christ starts to prepare his disciples for the coming crucifixion. I think there's a lot that we can learn, though, just from the aspect of two ministries working side by side. Two ministries side by side. Are they in competition with one another? Absolutely not. Should we be able to rejoice when the other rejoices? We better. Okay? And I think... um, it, the moment we start thinking of ourselves as the only, you know, the only place in town teaching the truth, I think we're in trouble. Okay, are there other ministries in town? Obviously, do they teach? Somewhat. <laughs> okay. Now I might be critical on the methodology, and I think we can accurately state that. There's no church exactly like Austin Bible Church. I mean, there's not a clone out there anywhere that I'm aware of. But there are other teaching ministries. And to the extent that they teach, is is content going out? Okay. So I'm not going to criticize. I'm not going to condemn. I'm not going to judge because he has to stand before his master. Every pastor does, just like I do. And if God blesses one, then I have reason to celebrate, not a reason to get grumpy. And to say, why do they have all the people and all the money? Why are their cars parked, you know, why is their parking lot packed out? 
See, that's what these disciples are all bummed out about. We're losing people here, John. He's taking them. Which means what? Which means we need to change. We need to do something. We've got to come up with something to steal them back. And that's how most church growth happens anymore nowadays. It's, it's either stealing from other churches or it's biological. We're making babies and they're growing up. Okay? There is very little actual evangelistic church growth. But co, uh, contemporaneous ministries I, I find to be quite interesting as they are able to encourage one another. Antioch was able to encourage Jerusalem. The Macedonian churches were able to build up the uh, uh, church at Corinth. See, local churches can minister to other local churches. I, I just found out over the weekend that I've been invited to Sweeney in, in June. See, and I haven't worked out the details yet because it means another Sunday I'm going to have to get covered here. Unless we can just rent a couple of buses and take everybody down there. And the whole church can go. We'll put a sign on the door, closed, we went to Sweeney. Okay. And I mean, it wouldn't take but a couple of buses and 66 passenger buses and truck us all down there, see. But uh, Emil and Evelyn are having their 50th anniversary and he was one of the pastors that ordained me and, and uh, we've just got a lot of closeness with the believers down there in Brazoria County. So I uh, haven't worked out the details yet and the deacons don't know about it yet, but uh, anyway, we'll work on that and, and figure out what uh, what needs to happen there in the month of June. But ministries that are nearby can be an encouragement. Point two, oh, I'm sorry, point D. This training ministry had success, as defined, in terms of positive volition of people coming to be baptized. Now, do numbers always indicate success? No. But positive volition indicates success. People coming for the right reason indicates success. And John the Baptist was happy with it. The grumblers were unhappy. John the Baptist was happy. So I'm going to interpret this passage in accordance with the wisdom of John the Baptist. That this is a good thing that's happening. Not a bad thing that's happening. The positive volition of people coming to be baptized acknowledging that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and that the king is now in the midst and that it's a kingdom of righteousness. It's not an earthly kingdom of, uh, of human effort. Verse 23, verse 26. People were coming and were being baptized. I think it was two events. We're coming, we're being baptized, which means, you know, they might have come out for the entertainment. They might have come out with a sense of wonder. They might have just, you know, and Christ asked them, you know, were you going out there because it was just, the latest craze, why were you going out there? Who would you go out there to see? A prophet? And more than a prophet. Not only were they coming out there, but once they got there, they heard the message and they took action. They were coming. They were being baptized. Verse 26, um, <laughs> in the grumbling complaint, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. He's getting the numbers and we're losing them. So it was successful in terms of the positive volition of people coming to be baptized. Now what's interesting is what is the response to a message? Because it's going to change. It's going to change. It's going to, as, as the Lord continues on, He's going to gather crowds. He's going to feed 5,000, for example. But there's going to be a change in terms of people that are not coming for the message anymore. 
He says, you came not because you heard, but because you ate of the bread and were filled. And he's trying to teach them about God's bread out of heaven. They don't want any part of that. They just want another miracle. See, and that's entirely different. And that's where this change starts to happen, where he stops teaching about the kingdom. Because they stop listening to the message in terms of the crowds. And we'll we'll deal with that. Um, We're also going to have to, I think, be a little bit more cautious with defining who these people are. Who is this person in verse, who are these people in verse 20, and this person here in verse 25? There arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. I thought they were all Jews. <laughs> Jesus was a Jew. Peter was a Jew. John was a Jew. John the Baptist was a Jew. Right? They're all Jews. <laughs> Racially. Okay, but the term Jew, as it's employed in the Gospels, as it's employed especially by the Apostle John, has reference to this religious system around Jerusalem. These that were the followers of the Jewish religious system, as codified by the Pharisees, as run by the Sanhedrin, these were the religious people of their day. And most of them weren't even saved. That's what it means when you read the word Jew in the Gospel of John or any of the Gospel accounts, because they were all Jews, racially speaking. Okay, So... We'll deal with that. All right, we've got a good jump on it. Uh, as I say, no class next week. Two weeks from today, we'll come back and we will wrap this up and deal with the remainder of these uh, principles here in the co-ministry with John the Baptist. And then um, there's a lot to deal with here, though, in terms of what he understood and what he taught. And then uh, the departure for Galilee in the first part of chapter 4, the woman at the well. Great story. I love the woman at the well. I can teach John 4 a hundred times between now and Christmas, and I'll never get tired of this woman. And how he just totally exposes this promiscuous woman like you wouldn't believe and spells out how many sex partners she's ever had and all this other stuff. And you know what? She's not offended by that. She's not insulted. She doesn't feel attacked because she knows this guy's a prophet. She can get her spiritual answers, uh, questions answered now. So we'll deal with that. And then uh, that will wrap up the beginning of Jesus' ministry and prepare us for the Galilean ministry. And uh, Lord willing, we'll keep moving on from there. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.